You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Good morning, everybody. So if you remember, uh, one of the things that we were trying to do in, in the class is sort of follow the trajectory of the weekly parasha. Um, and uh, sometime in January, we kind of lost the thread of that um, uh, we, because, for a couple reasons. One is uh, because uh, we, uh, we, we were... There's a lot of commandments in uh, Mishpatim, um, which is what we've been really spending the past couple of months looking at. Um, but we also skipped over, passed over, if you will, uh, some, uh, some of the laws uh, earlier in the book of Exodus, in particular uh, Parshat Bo and, and Parshat Beshalach. Um, that deal with Passover, just because it didn't feel like at the time that I really wanted to start talking about Passover in January. Well, it's time now to start talking about, thinking about Passover again. Um, so I want to think about um, something that I, I think we don't really give a lot of thought to, um, which is the, the commandment of eating matzah on Passover. Okay, I want to treat that as a different commandment from the commandment, because it is a different commandment, from the commandment uh, not to eat and not to possess any chametz during Passover. So let's put that one aside, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that one maybe next week. But the commandment of eating matzah on Passover is his own unique commandment. Um, so much so that uh, that that the uh, rabbis say that the the commandment about chametz or or not to eat chametz, not to have chametz, applies to the to the whole of the holiday of Passover. But you're only uh, you only have to eat matzah once at the seder. Um, and so, what's the reason that we're uh, Given classically given for why we're supposed to eat matzah on Passover. They didn't have time to let the dough rise when they baked the cakes. Good. So the 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 Israel, leaving in such a hurry. Right. The Israelites were leaving Egypt in such a hurry that they didn't have time to let the dough rise um, uh, when they were baking bread uh, before they left. Okay. I want to pause there and think about that for just a second. So tell me if you were making that movie, right? You were Cecil B. DeMille, and you were making the movie of, uh, of the Exodus, what would that look like, right? Why, why is it that, that that's the case? Why were the Israelites leaving in such a hurry that they didn't have time to bake bread? Okay, so they were preoccupied with other things, right? So it's not actually, it's not that they were leaving in such a hurry. I mean, maybe it was a hurry, but they were, but they were really focused on other things. They were, they were robbing, well, they, they were, they were, uh, they were, they were accepting the gifts from the, uh, from the Egyptians. They were, uh, right. Right, right. So maybe it was. There's, there's disagreement about exactly what's happening there. The Torah seems to imply that the, the Egyptians were so favorably disposed toward the, uh, toward the Hebrews that uh, that they just uh, voluntarily gave them um, all of their, uh, all of their wealth. Right, please, please take my gold and silver. Um, you know, maybe they, maybe the, the, the theory is that uh, the, the chronology of the Torah is maybe kind of off. So maybe they were just spoiled during the um, uh, plague of darkness. Um, 
Anyway, we, so, we, yes. So maybe they were preoccupied with other things. They didn't have really time for baking. What about Pharaoh changing his mind again, which he, wow. had done, which he had done a bunch of times already in response to the plagues? Yes. Uh, so that's that, that, to me, would sound like the most plausible explanation. The only problem with that explanation is if you follow the Torah's... The Torah's chronology is kind of messed up, so it's hard to really know what's, what's happening. Um, but it seems like Pharaoh doesn't make that decision... Uh, uh, to chase after the the Hebrews until well after they've uh, done this thing of, of not baking off their bread. Right, but might they have been concerned that he was going to change his mind? Because he's done that, they've seen him do that before. Maybe. They they, they learned their lesson, right? They, right? He changed his mind in all the other plagues, so why not this here. one? Right. Turns out they were right, but it right. was a preventative measure. Right. Okay. Any other thoughts? Any other ideas? I want to go back to the despoiling. Okay. I think that they were given gifts to get rid of them because, after all, every household had a firstborn child that was dead. Right. And I think they were so fearful, they just wanted them to go. The right. people wanted them to go. Right. Okay, so there's a... there's a uh, Kevin, could you hand me a chumash? There is... You're, you're hitting on something really uh, interesting, um, which is... Uh, um, Something that I think is worth our pointing out in this conversation of uh, of not really knowing what what's the nature of the relationship at this point between the uh, Israelites and the uh, and the rest of the Egyptians, um, and and you're hit, you're hitting at something that that uh, um, uh, probably unbeknownst to you that that I want to uh, a theory that I want to uh, uh, call out, but basically the uh, the the notion here is that um, that the that the Egyptians are the Egyptians are pushing the uh, Hebrews out, right? They're they're saying, "Take my gold and go, get out of here," right? And so uh, the uh, the Israelites maybe aren't baking their bread not because they're in such a hurry to leave, but because they're being goaded to leave very quickly, right? There's a, there, there's mob rule now in Egypt, right? And uh, and the average Egyptian is uh, is you know going to them at knife point and saying, "You better get out of here." Right or or gold point, right? saying <laughs> you better get out of here. Um, another theory, by the way, that uh, that about this is that um, you know these are these are reparations um, for for slavery, um, which is um, an interesting concept to consider from the Torah, as uh, um, that uh, issue uh, periodically comes up in our own uh, republic. Um, so, like I'm yeah. thinking, when you're talking about pushing them out, they brought these plagues upon the, the the country, just like Jonah being thrown off the ship. You know, you're making our ship rock. Mm-hmm. We're gonna get you off of here so that we're safe. If you get out of Egypt, maybe we'll be safe again. Yeah, it could be right. Um, uh, we'll th- <laughs> th- we'll throw you overboard. Yeah, could be, could be something like that. Um, um, and, and but, but the story of Jonah is ultimately the people in Nineveh repented. There's no evidence the Egyptians repented. Right, although these are two different groups of people, right? right. There's the people in Nineveh the and the people on the ship. Right. Although the people on the ship um, uh, don't don't uh, suggest throwing Jonah overboard. Right. Jonah suggests suggests about himself. He says, just throw me overboard so you guys will save yourselves. Um, so it's an interesting analogy to think about. And, and if that's what the Hebrews are doing here... Um, it, it it also you know suggests a very different kind of relationship that they're having with the uh, with with the uh, Egyptians. So here's what how okay the chapter twelve of Exodus is 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 a little bit strange. 
Okay, so um, uh, you have the, the law about the Paschal Lamb, okay, uh, and, uh, and that includes the law of taking the blood of the Lamb and putting it on the doorpost uh, to, uh, um, um, uh, to, to, to uh, in, symbolically to, to stave off the, uh, the, the uh, angel of death. Well, well, actually, I was looking at that text when we were reading it last week, and it's, it's actually God we've interpreted it to yeah, be the, the angel, angel of death. That's true. Yeah. Uh, although the, there's a, there's a, I can't remember which verse, but there's a word that says, uh, um, uh, the destroyer. Um, right. uh, but anyway, yes, right. It's, it's, it's really God who's coming. Um, which I think that we've interpreted an angel of death in part to exonerate God and in part to help explain the other weird thing about the, uh, about, uh, the story, which is if it's God going through Egypt, how would God not know the difference between the Israelite houses and the Egyptian houses, um, except for except for the blood? Um, there, there, there are lots of. Uh, um, I think the most interesting studies on it are really kind of anthropological. Um, the 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 function of blood in uh, in ritual in an ancient in the ancient world, but that that's a little bit uh, a field from what we're talking about. Okay, so you put the blood of, of the sacrifice on on your doorposts. Okay, then verse 14, this day shall be to you one of remembrance. You shall, shall, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the very first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So you really have two different commandments. You have don't eat, uh, you have, you, you must eat unleavened bread and then remove all leaven from your houses. You shall celebrate a sacred occasion on the first day and a sacred occasion on the seventh day. No work shall be done on them. Only what person, only what every person is to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout the ages as an institution for all time. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Um, if we're being literal about the Torah, it seems like the the commandment to eat unleavened bread is actually for all those days. Um, but the rabbis interpret it to be you only have to eat matzah on the first day. Um, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the community of Israel. Uh, you shall eat nothing leavened, right? So he repeats it again, and uh, and it's a, clearly a very important commandment um, in the context of the Torah, um, right? That that you you know you're 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 um, you're barely a Jew if you eat leavened bread on Passover, according to the Torah. I would never say that to a Jew in the flesh. Well, listening to you, it almost sounds like it has nothing to do with either of the causes. Mm. That's right. So, okay, so we, we got to keep going, okay? Moses then summoned all the elders, right? So we, we have the commandment, you're right. We have the commandment of matzah before we have the explanation of why we're supposed, what, what, it, what's, that, that, that is, uh, that, that may be telling. It also may be just, uh, um, what Rashi says, a muktam melchar Torah. There's no strict chronology to the Torah, so things are, are, right. are, are okay. put out of order. But you, but you're right. It, it is conspicuous that we have this commandment about the about the matzah and and uh, no chametz without any context for it at all. Um, 
Moses then summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go pick out lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover offering. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin, apply some of the blood that's in the basin to the lintel uh, uh, and to the two doorposts. None of you shall go outside the door of this house of his house until the morning, for when the Lord goes through, when God goes through to smite the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, and God will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter and smite your home. So that's the interesting interplay right. between God and the destroyer. But again, you had, before you had the commandment of the Paschal offering and the blood on the doorpost without any context for why you're doing it. And then only later you get the context. Okay. You shall observe this uh, um, as an institution for all time for you and your descendants. And when you enter the land, the Lord, your your God will give you uh, as, as God has promised, you shall observe this ritual. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this ritual? You shall say it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord because God passed over the house of the Israelites in Egypt when God smote the Egyptians, but saved our houses. Then the people bowed low in, in homage, homage. How do you say that word? Homage. 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 There we go. Okay. Um, And the Israelites went and did so. Just as the Lord, uh, it's an interesting, in Hebrew, the, the, Vayikod Ha'am V'yishtachu. Anyway, uh, the homage thing isn't there. uh, uh, The Israelites went and did so, just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. All right, in the middle of the night, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Pharaoh rose in the night with all his courtiers and all the Egyptians because there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was no house where there was not someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Up, depart from among my people, you and the Israelites with you. Go worship the Lord as you said. Take your flocks and your herds as you said and be gone, and may you bring a blessing upon me also." The Egyptians urged the people on, impatient to have them leave the country, for they said, We shall be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. The Israelites had done Moses' bidding and borrowed from the Egyptians objects of silver and gold, borrowing from the <laughs> Egyptians objects of silver and gold, and clothing, and the what Lord had disposed... For that word? Borrowing? Uh, it's Vishalu, I think. Um, yeah, Vishalu. They, they, uh, yeah, it's, it's like borrowed. They, 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 uh, they, Sha'al is to ask for, right? So they requested from them. Um, Didn't an Egyptian colonist write something about getting repaid for borrowing the silver and the gold? <laughs> really? I no, I didn't. So. That's funny. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe it's not funny. Um, that may be, part, that may be and, part of the Pollard deal. Yeah. You know? and, and the Lord had disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people. So in, in the span of two verses, you have a, a little bit of schizophrenia here. On the one hand, the Egyptians are desperate to have the uh, he, the Hebrews go. And then a couple <laughs> verses later, the Lord had disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people, and they let them have their request. Thus they stripped the Egyptians, Vinatzlu, they, they, they stripped them bare. Okay, so what we have in, uh, in, in, in chapter 12 is um, a, a little bit confusing. First you have the laws, then you have the narrative that is supposed to be the reason for the laws, um, but the narrative itself is, uh, is a little bit opaque about what's going on. All right, so um, I, I I want to uh, bring in a theory that uh, um, uh, is uh, uh, propounded now by by a lot of biblical scholars um, called the supplementary hypothesis. You've heard of the documentary hypothesis. The documentary hypothesis says that uh, there were really four or five um, 
uh, uh, authors or, or author schools to that that ended up com, uh, comprising the Torah. The supplementary hypothesis uh, says uh, that there were probably like ten different documents that went into the Torah, um, and the Torah sort of uh, uh, builds itself layer upon layer, like a tell in Israel, right? So if you dig through each layer, you can get it. So uh, according to Semach Yoreh, who's a, a Bible scholar, works for, uh, now for, as a scholar in residence at Klal, um, he wrote a book, he wrote, he wrote a series of books, I think a really wonderful series of books, because it's uh, done in a very uh, user-friendly fashion. Um, uh, um, uh, I don't remember what the series is called, but the two that deal with the Exodus are Moses' mission and the uh, uh, the journey to Sinai, I think, are those two. Um, you can get them on Amazon. Uh, and, uh, and and what he suggests is that the original kernel of the Exodus story is almost unrecognizable from the uh, story as we have it now. And over time, because it's uh, this happens with the most uh, popular and powerful stories in the in in the Torah, um, more voices get added to them because there are more people who want to tell those stories and more people who have. Uh, who, who have different ideas about how the story should go or di- even different agendas about what the story should be. So if you look at our story, he says, that um, the layer that deals with the laws of how to observe the uh, Passover ritual for all time um, are really priestly in nature. They bear all the marks of, of the authors of Leviticus, um, which are also the marks of the author of the first chapter of Genesis and, and, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, because they're very preoccupied with with law and with ritual, they're 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 very uh, concerned with the role of blood in ritual, all these different things, right? Um, but if you if you strip those layers down a little bit, right? You like take a house and like kind of peel off the paint and get to the original color of the house. The original kernel of the story of the Book of Exodus um, uh, 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 has a. Um, uh, um, uh, is, is very different. So, uh, first, uh, there is no slavery. Um, that uh, the, the Israelites are uh, you know, resident aliens in Egypt um, and are prevented from leaving. Egypt, right? They're they're not a they 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 sort of like an ambivalent relationship that the Egyptians have with this resident population because of a fear that they will uh, join with their enemies in 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 battle, right? And that's reflected in the text. Uh, Moses, um, who there's no origin story for Moses in this original kernel. Moses uh, appears sort of out of nowhere uh, and uh, and goes to Pharaoh to say, you know, let let my people go. Uh, Pharaoh. Uh, uh, refuses and uh, Moses uh, really Moses without uh, much um, you know the the text later on goes to uh, involve God more in the work of the plagues Uh, but if you look at the language of the plagues they're they're very different kinds of language and how plagues are worked Um, so uh, so philologists uh, uh, like this will, will say that that means that it's probably different authors writing and that uh, you can uh, identify the differences in all the different plagues. So uh, there were really three plagues in the original story, not ten. Uh, the more naturalistic of the plagues, right? So not blood, uh, that's more priestly, right? Not blood, not frogs. Probably, I think if I remember correctly, it was like um, lice uh, and, uh, and, and locusts, maybe hail. I I think hail is not because it has a, uh, hail has a sort of miraculous component to it. It's like fiery hail. So it's, uh, I think it was, I think it was lice, uh, um, lice, pestilence, and locusts. 
um, were the plagues, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken. But in any event, there are three plagues, and and after the plagues, uh, there's no uh, there, there's no uh, uh, interchange between Moses and Pharaoh after there's no death of the firstborn. There's no uh, interchange between Moses and Pharaoh after the plagues. Um, there's only an interchange between the people and the Hebrews, right? The Egyptians and the Hebrews, and uh, according to the theory. Uh, all that's in that kernel of the Exodus is the Egyptians urge the people on, right? Techazak Mitzrayim al Ha'am lemaher, right? They strongly encourage them to leave quickly, um, uh, impatient to have them leave the country, for they said, "We shall be dead," right? So it's sort of like what you're saying, Charlotte, right? They saw the plagues and they say, "We need to throw these people overboard," right? Um, we need to get these people out of here. Um, so the people, uh, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. Right. So the the people, uh, uh, it was in in the description of uh, of of the this theory of of Yoris theory, um, it was sort of like a, a popular rebellion in in Egypt um, that uh, that that forced Pharaoh to let the um, the Hebrews go. Pharaoh then in that story um, uh, changes his mind later, but it makes more sense for Pharaoh to change his mind later because he never really agreed to the the Hebrews going. Right, the the Egyptians made the Hebrews go. The Hebrews left maybe under cover of darkness, but they left without Pharaoh knowing they were leaving. They just skedaddled out of there, um, which helps explain the, the quickness that they needed to go because they really were doing it without Pharaoh's permission. They needed to do it uh, with, before Pharaoh could catch them. right? And then Pharaoh realized, hey, where all these people go? And he starts chasing after them. Right? Especially since it's two million people. Right. right. So, so according <laughs> according to the supplementary theory, Jeez, uh, neighborhood. Right. According to the supplementary theory, uh, the the, uh, the the two million people, which is which is based on the six hundred thousand right. number, um, is uh, is a much later uh, addition, uh, probably also priestly, um, the, the because those kind of round numbers are. are uh, um, uh, very reflective of that kind of authorship, but uh, uh, and it was probably a couple of thousand uh, uh, Hebrews because, um, according to the theory, this is really only a generation or two after the death of Joseph, um, and not the four hundred years that, uh, that that is that that's written. Um, it's a pretty compelling theory. It's in part compelling because it does help explain um, the, the 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 matzah thing, right? If, if the if the if the Hebrews had to leave without Pharaoh knowing, right, then they got to go quickly. And if they had to leave because the Egyptians are, you know, chasing them out, right, then they just like grab whatever they can and run out. Now, it's another. There's another possibility, by the way, that um, that there was a uh, an ancient, you know, spring holiday ritual that involved unleavened bread for whatever reason, and uh, that holiday gets appropriated into the Passover story. Um, personally, I like. The, um, the 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 theory that it, that's lended by the um, uh, by the by, by the supplementary hypothesis because uh, it, it 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 creates a more plausible story and a more uh, plausible um, uh, 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 reason for the ritual. Now, uh, what that made me think about, I have I have two more things to say really quickly. What that made me think about is. Um, uh, King's phrase, the fierce urgency of now. Right, so he says it twice. The first time um, I think that he said it, or the first time in, uh, that we know that he said it, um, is in his I Have a Dream speech. Right Here he says, We have also come to this hallowed spot 
to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. (coughs) Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. And then a few years later, he uh, gave a speech about his uh, views on Vietnam. And he says, We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at the flood. It ebbs. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is deaf to every plea and rushes on. Over the bleached bones and jumbled residue of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words, Too late. There is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. The finger writes, and having writ, moves on. Um, Kali, Kali, the, the finger. Yeah, it, 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 I see that it's a quote, but I don't know where it comes from. Khalil yeah. Gibran. Yeah. What is that? Who is that? He's an Arabic mm. poet. Mm. Yeah. He's the, the one that said your children don't really belong to you. Mm. They are borrowed mm. for a period of time. Mm. Mm. <laughs> So they move back in, right? I was going to say, how do we relate that to giving back the gold and silver? Yeah. Rabbi, some of this supplementary theory, which I, I find very interesting, but it occurs to me that it's like, in, it's Midrash creating a new Torah. In other words, it's like finding what you think is a logical explanation for something. Yeah. which I think is what Midrash is, or trying to explain something in the Torah. But now you're talking about creating a new Torah, which is quite different. Well, okay, so uh, um, some Midrash does what you're saying. Right? Some Midrash tries to find... Rashi often looks for the Midrash, for example, that, that helps give the simplest explanation for, for what's happening in the Torah. Uh, and uh, uh, because those are really the... the there, there was no... There, there wasn't really uh, the science of philology in, in Rashi's time, um, and uh, uh, um, uh, there was no archaeology and things like that. Rashi didn't have those tools. If Rashi had those tools, who knows what Rashi would have said about uh, the simple meaning of, of the text. Um, you know, so we have different tools now to, uh, to uncover the, the simple meaning of the text. So in some way it is, I think, doing what Rashi was doing and what, what, the, what the Midrash was doing. Um, and so, you know, there have been people over time that made ar- that, that same argument about midrash. Right? You're writing, a new, if you're, if you, if you, if you're, you know, if you're saying that it's an angel of death that went through Egypt, right, and not God, you're writing a new Torah. Um, but that's not, you know, uh, that's not what the authors of the midrash thought they were doing. The authors of the midrash thought they were uncovering something that was embedded within the Torah, and they're just bringing it out. And I think that that is, in a way, what what uh, the what the um, higher critics, biblical critics think that they're doing too, is sort of um, um, uncovering something that's already there. Not writing a new Torah, but uh, but, but sort of uh, uh, 
giving an explanation of how the Torah as we have it came to be, right? And, uh, and, and the truth is they, they create a pretty compelling argument um, about uh, a Torah that's uh, comprised of multiple layers so that we do really have many Torahs uh, in a way that were over time consolidated into one Torah um, and we've had that one Torah for a couple of millennia. Um, but before we had that one Torah, um, there were there were many Torahs, and and you know the, there's there's pretty solid archaeology to back that up. I mean, you know, you don't have to look much further than the than the Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah, right, true. to see that uh, um, to see that there were many different kinds of Torahs floating around, right. Um, pretty late in our history. That's uh, Dead Sea Scrolls are pretty late. Right? <laughs> People think that uh, you know that even the supplementary hypothesis will uh, think that uh, that the Torah was probably redacted um, sometime in the Babylonian period or shortly thereafter. Um, so, uh, you know, you know you, to do what they're doing, um, I think, doesn't strip the Torah of its, of its uh, um, ancient uh, pedigree um, or its authority or its history. It's, it's, uh, it's, just, it's trying to describe the Torah as it was and as it is. Um, so that I, I think that, to me... Um, they're, they're, they're not, I don't think, I don't see them as trying to dismantle. I see them as trying to help understand. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's to me a really useful tool, um, in part because, you know, you have a text like chapter 12 of Exodus that, um, that, that's so complicated. Um, and it, you know, if you think that the simplest explanation is usually the, uh, most accurate, um, not necessarily, not necessarily. Uh, but uh, uh, but but a simple explanation is that there, that there are different stories here, right? Um, and uh, and and there are authors who are interested in different things, right? So um, so there there are people who are interested in how do we do this now, right? Uh, and then there are people are you know interested in okay what what does it mean what we do now, right? And there are people who are not interested in that at all that are just interested in what happened then. Right, um, and uh, you know, and so we have that. Today. So I, I get what you're saying, um, but uh, I, I think that um, you know, in fairness to, uh, to to the scholars, I, I don't think that that's what they think they're doing, and, and it's not how I it's not how I experience it. I don't experience it as, as creating a new Torah. I see it as as um, uh, illuminating things that are, are but already. Are, but are they Torah. take? But are they in create in creating this interpretation? Are they taking God out of the? Because because in the, in the way you describe the supplemental theory, God seems to go away right. and, and be absent. Right. So okay. So they're doing a couple things. I mean, they're taking God out in one sense, which is the sense of uh, direct divine authorship of the Torah. Right. So they're, they're well, not only authorship. But I'm talking about. I, I know. Oh, so, okay. but that's very clear. That's right? they're, okay. they're, they're making a clear statement that uh, okay. that the human beings wrote it. Now, you can have a theology like mine. That says that the authors of the Torah, I believe, were prophets and, and were were inspired by God, moved by God to uh, to write what they wrote. Um, and so, you know, you could be cynical about it and say, oh, they had political agenda. Well, maybe they did. I mean, people have multiple agendas when they when they do things. Um, but I think, in part, you know, there's such depth and wisdom to the Torah um, that, to me, the only at least metaphor that I can use to describe what that is is uh, is is. Um, is prophecy and and, uh, and divine insight. So that's one side. Um, uh, 
I, to me, it's really fascinating to see, um, you can, if you peel apart the layers, you can see the development of, uh, of Jewish religion. Right, and you can see that the Jewish religion was developing at all stages of its history, uh, including now, but even then. Um, and so, uh, it, uh, the the kernel of the text that that they point out, they think the earliest uh, part of the text is is, is called the E text, the, which um, with the E stands for the Eloist, um, because it's a, an author that likes using the word for God, Elohim. And you can see just from that that uh, that that author is not an atheist by any means. Um, but is uh, is more you know we usually think of the more the the older you get the more uh, mythological people were the more uh, they 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 assumed you know in uh, divine control of everything right and, uh, and and what what this theory shows that that I think is pretty fascinating is that that's not entirely accurate.